the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. Wednesday, October 21st, 2020. No, no one embodies politics and culture so much as uh, our next guest, Dr. Tevi Troy, presidential and cultural historian, author of several books, most recently, very fun book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. There was an article written today by a mutual friend of Tevi's and mine, Matthew Continetti, uh, about some history of the conservative movement that Tevi and I have been talking about for years, and I thought give the benefit of uh, of that conversation and Matthew's article to the audience. Um, Tevi, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Seth. And you are officially the radio show that has me on to talk about Fight House more than any other radio show, and I appreciate it. Oh, good. Did we did we go over the top today? We 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 made it over the <laughs> made it over the bar with today's. <laughs> I think you passed the record a while ago, but uh, I just want to uh, you know it's uh, appreciation of good things that people do for you is an important uh, principle in the Jewish religion, and I just wanted to make sure I appreciate that you have me on to talk about Fight House. So thank you. You're very you're very kind. Gratitude is uh, is an important is an important thing, and 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 too too infrequent in our society. I I, I think I might be the radio show. That might have sold the most books of it. It's a very literate audience, and I know a lot of people who have uh, listened to our interviews and have have, per- have told me they purchased the book based on them. It's a fun read. It's a really fun Great. read. Before and also, gratitude the, is a key yeah. conservative principle. Yeah, you know, those who are grateful tend to be more conservative. In fact, I believe William Buckley wrote a book titled "Gratitude." That's true, and and our friend Yuval Levin has also been talking about the animating principle of conservatism these days is really gratitude. And and if you think about it, the people who appreciate America, who appreciate Western civilization, what it's been, what it's brought to the world, they're the ones who are conservative, and the ones who see only flaws and only problems and only criticism, those tend to be not only liberal but often radical. Radical, and actually, that's a great segue into what we wanted to talk about commentary in a, in a specific piece that Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote. I guess it was in 1975. Can we bookmark that and come back to it, even though the segue was so beautiful? Because I got to do a contemporary political question for you first. Absolutely, Pat, I'm always happy to talk about. Um... Patrick, uh, Dan, Dana Patrick Moynihan's article, whenever you're up for it. Uh, it'll come up shortly, trust me. It'll come up shortly, but um, our, our, current, our, our current travails intrude. Um, I noticed in a kind of back-ended way, um, one of the hosts, maybe the most prominent host on, on Urban Black Radio, is, is, a, is a man named Charlemagne. If you don't remember him or if the audience doesn't, He's the radio host that Joe Biden said, if you're having, if you don't know who to vote for, me or Donald Trump, then you ain't black. That's that radio host who yes, Joe I Biden remember said. Charlemagne the Great. Yeah, unforgettable. It, it ain't it ain't the great that he calls himself, but we'll leave it at that because I, I don't give him the the appellation he gives himself. Um, he said something today that just kind of got me thinking. He said he's not endorsing or voting for Joe Biden. He's voting for Kamala Harris, which of course is a is a cute impossibility. But it got me to thinking about the importance in history, 
presidential history and election history, the importance of vice presidential nominees and how much they do or don't matter. And I, I've always operated, and you can school me, you're, you're the expert, you just tell me if I'm wrong. I've always operated on the thought that I think really up until now, only two may have made differences and maybe not even that significant. Maybe JFK picking LBJ and maybe John McCain picking Sarah Palin because it said something to the base he needed to say. It didn't even, you know, result in, in his victory. You may disagree with both, but this might be a third one, uh, uh, the Biden-Harris ticket. I'd love your analysis on all that. Right. So sir, I certainly don't agree. I don't disagree on JFK LBJ. It was important to balance the ticket, and LBJ helped bring Texas along, whether by legitimate means or otherwise, and that was crucial to JFK winning that election. I don't know if we can say the same about John McCain and Sarah Palin, only because they didn't win. So if right, they had right, won, right. maybe you could make a different analysis. Right. But, right. but, but let me make it another uh, another attempt at this, which is I think in 2000. The selection of Dick Cheney by George W. Bush was extremely helpful to Bush, and it wasn't for the normal reasons, the whole ticket balancing thing or the young, ambitious person. He picked Dick Cheney because he wanted people to say, maybe you're uncomfortable with me because I don't have a lot of national experience, but with Dick Cheney, we have an adult in the room, a guy who with real national security experience who helped prosecute the Gulf War, who'd been a White House chief of staff. And, and I think that pick really said a lot for Bush and really helped him. I could buy that, and I'll throw one other uh, possible um, uh, uh, anomaly to you if I can. Um, when Bill Clinton picked Al Gore, it takes a long way back in our memory to get there. But people have to remember who at the time Al Gore was and what the country was thinking about Bill Clinton with sexual indiscretions and scandal. And in the Democratic Party, Al Gore at that time, Southern Baptist and all that, seemed like, you know, the, 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 the model, the model of, uh, of uh, social sobriety, if you will. I think yeah, but, but something else, that. I agree with that, but yeah. there was something else to it, which is Bill Clinton sold himself as the moderate DLC Democratic Leadership right. Coalition right. Democrat, the kind of right. the conservative Democrat, not your old Democrat, not the lefty McGoverns and, and Dukakises, a different kind of Democrat. And with Al Gore, he doubled down on that. He didn't go yeah. for the radical yeah. pick or right. a demographically favorable pick. He went, for, he went double down with another white Southern male who had experience in the DLC. And I, I think that was an important pick as a result. That's really interesting. He did double down. It was a different, yeah, that, it was a different Democratic Party for about a minute. Maybe it was a different Democratic Party, which does another effort at this segue to Daniel Patrick Moynihan in the 70s. It was a Democratic Party that looked back to that tradition, which is, I don't know if you'd agree with me, totally gone now, just totally nowhere to be found in the Democratic Party. I made the point. I would not want to show on. up a Democratic meeting and say I'm representing the DLC perspective. <laughs> right, right, right. If they didn't know what you were talking about, they would throw you out. But I was making the point before you came on that this magazine we're going to talk about in the history of the conservative movement, Commentary Magazine. Um, it's interesting when you think about center right Democrats of the 1970s. If they were looking for a place to publish. It wasn't really very often in a Democratic journal or a liberal journal. It was in a conservative journal. It was Commentary Magazine, kind of much like a point you taught me about. There's maybe three moderate Democrats left in the think tank world, and they write for the Wall Street Journal. 
Yeah, it, it's true. And um, you know, another thing I was thinking was, uh, you know, the New Republic a little bit, right? The New Republic was a liberal magazine that in those allow days, in those allow conservative voices occasionally, right. or at least more right. democratic voices. In those days, yeah, to right. be sure. Very different people, today. Very different. Yeah, people forget that's the magazine from whence Fred Barnes came, right? That was Fred Barnes's home for many, 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 many years. And, and not only that, but I, mean, I don't know if you remember, but in, in 2000, uh, they allowed me to write a defense of John Ashcroft. <laughs> I <laughs> don't remember that. They would al- <laughs> it's not like they would allow today. <laughs> that's for sure. In fact, today, today's New Republic has proposals altering the Constitution for a new one, not through an amendment, but through a new one. We can get to all that in a minute. Let's talk about Commentary Magazine and what Matt Continetti wrote about. For the audience that knows a little bit about it or some of it, how important was it to the conservative movement in the 60s, 70s, and 80s? Well, I would say the conservative movement was uh, ascendant in that period. It, uh, it was in the, in the lowest period, I would say, of uh, conservatism in modern history. It was in the 1950s when Lionel Trilling famously describes conservatism as a series of irritable, irritable mental gestures which seek to resemble ideas. A very famous dismissal of conservatism by somebody who himself was a mentor for the neoconservatives a little later in life. Uh, so conservatism was kind of dismissed, but it started rising in the 60s. You saw Ronald Reagan become governor of California, shocking everybody. And there was just this new style of, of conservatism emerging. And commentary, which had been kind of a moderate liberal anti-communist magazine under its founder, Elliot Cohen, it kind of went left early in the 60s with Norman Woodhart, and then it tracked back to the right in the late 60s when it saw the excesses of 60s radicalism. And by the 70s, Commentary is a hugely important neoconservative magazine and really helped shape many of the foreign policy ideas that animated the Reagan Revolution. And one of the most important articles in this entire process was this March 1975 article by Daniel Patrick Moynihan that we were talking about called The United States in Opposition. You know you're a good radio guest because you know what that music means. Can I keep you for a while? Absolutely. I look forward to it. Because, because you said even a couple things there I want to talk and expand more about, especially when you use that word neoconservative, because commentary, yes, was probably the house organ for neoconservative foreign policy. But what I like to remind people of, we can address this on the other side, is neoconservatism um, first really was about domestic policy, and I'd love to come back on all of that when we do with Dr. Tevi Troy, presidential historian and author of Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. If you have any questions for me and Tevi, 602-508-960. Tevi is Tevi Troy. Presidential and cultural historian, his most recent book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. I want to talk about commentary a little more, Tevi, and it's important, the constellation of conservative history and the conservative movement. Before we do, you had mentioned it was the, is it fair to say, house organ or one of maybe two house organs for the philosophy, the neoconservative uh, philosophy of uh, foreign policy. But what I remind people, and you tell me if I err in this. What I remind people is, though neoconservatism today is known for a foreign policy that's fallen out of some favor, 
it really didn't start that way. It started really as um, a view of domestic policy, particularly when it comes to issues of the welfare state, welfare policy, race relations. Um, I like to remind people that if you pick up Irving Kristol's book, people credit him as being the founder of the movement. If you pick up his book, Neoconservatism, the Autobiography of an Idea, um, there's but one, there's only one essay on foreign policy, national security, I believe. I'm right about this, aren't I? This was a domestic policy and movement originally, wasn't it? In, in which Daniel Moynihan looms large. Yes, you're totally right about it. And, and let me just make a couple of points. Number one is, first, Irving Crystal does begin with the public interest, which is domestic, his domestic policy magazine. Later, he follows up with the national interest, which is the foreign policy magazine. But the foreign policy of neoconservatism in the 1970s is very different from what was caricatured as the foreign policy of neoconservatism in the 2000s. Right. Uh, neoconservatism in the 1970s was about uh, what, what Pat Moynihan talks about in this article, about yeah. defending freedom, about defending America, about standing up against socialism and against communism and making the case for, for Western civilization. It was not necessarily about uh, bringing democracy through military means to countries that didn't have it. So it's, it's just a very different foreign policy in, in the 70s. The second point is on neoconservative domestic policy. At heart, it was the application of social science methods in a consistent way to public policy problems. And if that application of social science methods to domestic policy problems came up with conservative results and found that liberalism brought with it unintended consequences, then they were going to go with conservative policies. It didn't mean that they were going in as conservatives. They were going in as clear-eyed social scientists who wanted to see what worked. And that's what neoconservatism was in a nutshell in the 60s and early 70s. And that was having mostly to do with welfare, crime, and race policy, wasn't it? I mean, we're talking about people like Moynihan, James Q. Wilson, right? I mean, this is what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, and, and education. I mean, real, real hardcore domestic policy issues, the kind of the, the nuts and bolts of domestic policy. And they said, well, is, is there a problem if you have welfare programs that incentivize people not to work? What right. if you have uh, programs that incentivize fatherlessness? What if you don't enforce laws against crime? Uh, what if you allow criminals to roam the, the street or to get off easily for, for committing crimes or for scoff laws? Uh, it said, let's look at these policies and see what works and also see if the progressive policy solutions have unintended consequences, which as you know, and your audience knows, and I know, that they almost always do. Right, right, right. Inputs didn't equal outputs when it came to education. Re-racialization of society was a bad thing. Endowing fatherlessness through the welfare programs led to more generational poverty. That would be a fair summary, wouldn't it? Uh, and, 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 and being more relaxed on crime would lead to, <laughs> surprise, surprise, more crime. Um, but now let's do the foreign policy part of what Daniel Moynihan is moving into in the 70s. Um, and the Democrats, really, it, it was Democrats and former Democrats. I remind Reagan was a former Democrat, Jean Kirkpatrick, uh, a former Democrat. They were the ones that crafted this notion of standing up for America when very few else would do so with such 
full-throatedness, right? This is what more... Yeah, absolutely. In, in fact, a, a lot of these Democrats, they, they formed a group called the CDM, the Coalition for a Democratic Majority, and right. they backed Carter in 1976 right. because they right. thought that Ford was too soft on tyranny and that he was in the enthralled at Kissinger and the whole idea of real politic and detente, and he didn't want to represent America and take a, a, pro, a, a forward-looking position on human rights and on freedom. Uh, and he, he wanted to manage the Cold War, and that was not what they wanted. Now, they were very disappointed in Carter, both in terms of the content of his foreign policy and also in the way he shut them out from foreign policy positions. Elliot Abrams famously had that joke when the only neoconservative who got any position, despite their backing of Carter in the Carter administration, was someone who got a position as ambassador to Micronesia. And Elliot Abrams famously joked, we couldn't even get Macronesia, we just got Micronesia. Right. And right. so that kind of symbolized the, the Carter approach. He was willing to talk to these people and flirt with these people in the election campaign, but when it came to governing, he wanted nothing to do with, with the neoconservatives and this kind of pro-freedom, advanced, the advanced democracy, foreign policy. That translated to domestic, too, in an interesting way. I remind people that what became Jerry Falwell's moral majority in 1980 to back Jimmy Carter, excuse me, to back Ronald Reagan, was more or less endorsing Jimmy Carter in 1976. Absolutely, too. he was the first born again president. Right, right. they were right. they were eager to get behind Carter. They were right. they were sorely disappointed. Right, right. He let them down as he let yeah. down the uh, the foreign policy. Uh, what would you call it, hawks? Uh, but what Moynihan is talking about in the 70s is what Kirkpatrick would talk about in the 80s, which is the increasing development around the world of a rabid ideological and philosophical anti-Americanism. Talk to me about this. Yeah, so it's very important for your listeners to recognize that our current view of the UN as a place where, where uh, kind of dictators and human rights abusers get to lecture countries like the U.S. and Israel about uh, about supposed human rights violations, a place where um, the Western forces and democracies are vastly outnumbered and consistently denounced. That is the UN, but it was not always the American perception of the UN. And it was Moynihan's brilliant article that helped establish this correct perception of the UN in American eyes. He got up there and he said, this is a very problematic place. I've just served as the ambassador to the UN. They've passed horrific pieces of... Uh, again, the de declaration Re like Zionism is racism. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. right. And, and yeah. this is not the place that is going to represent our values. After World War II, we thought, hey, we'd have the United Nations and it would advance democracy and freedom and all this. And it's not what the UN was. And Moynihan explained why and explained who had the power there and explained how it went from a place of 50 nations to uh, over 150 nations, most of whom did not believe in human rights, did not believe in freedom, did not believe in democracy. And they constantly got together and denounced the freedom-loving nations. And Moynihan explained this phenomenon in the article, which we learned from Continenti was originally a 60-page article. It was uh, edited down by, um, uh, by, by the great editor of uh, Commentary, Norm Pethart. Uh, and he explained it, and he also explained what the U.S. should do about it, that our position should be we fight for liberty, we support freedom, and we should stand up and be proud for it. And, and he said the brilliant thing that I will just say quickly. Yeah. He said oh, it will it, not save be... It, save it, save it, Hold it. Okay. Hold the thought. Hold the thought. It's important. I think I know where you're going, and it's an important thought I want to give full air to. We'll be right back with more from Tevi Troy.
little 70s music to talk about a little 70s history. Let me put in a word for my latest uh, newest sponsor, Nationwide Coin and Bullion Reserve. You want something steady and solid right now in these times of uncertainty. You want gold, and you want to buy it from Nationwide Coin. They are a trusted source for precious metals with a 4.6-star rating on Trustpilot. Nationwide Coin and Bullion Reserve has an exceptional offer for new customers. While supplies last, you can get a one-ounce Gold Eagle coin at cost for just eighteen seventy-five, which, trust me, is a heck of a deal if you look around for it. Weight and purity are backed by the U.S. government. It's a great opportunity to safeguard your future, so call Nationwide at 800-850-1155. That's 800-850-1155. And tell them that you heard about them on my show, Nationwide Coin, at 800-850-1155. Five, five. We're talking with Tevi Troy, author of Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Tevi, uh, you were about to make an important point about the history of commentary and neoconservatism and, 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 and standing up for America before we went to break. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, so Moynihan, in arguing for this robust foreign policy, for this celebration of Western civilization and freedom and democracy, and for pushing back hard against Soviet Union against totalitarianism and against socialism. He was a happier warrior, as they, as they would say. He wanted to do this uh, with joy. Um, and he said that um, uh, he talked about how they'd, they'd mostly pushed back on totalitarianism. He said in the, in the closing words, our task is now to learn to deal with socialism. It will not be less difficult a task, but it ought to be a profoundly more pleasant one. He, can, he was talking about um, the ability to happily embrace the fight and to lean into it. And uh, I, I really think that's something that we should think about today. I mean, I know we complain about uh, the Democratic Party being uh, increasingly uh, sympathetic to socialism and that um, the, the young generation uh, not remembering the fight against the Soviet Union and, and the ravages of socialism. Uh, and, you know, sometimes uh, we, we talk about it with uh, seeming despair. And I, I think we should actually embrace the fight because uh, our ideas, the market-based ideas, the freedom-based ideas, free speech, these are the correct ideas, and I, I think we should embrace them and push them. I'm with you on that, and there are few as optimistic and, you know, roll up their sleeves and pull up their socks full of the joy of political life, I know, as you are, Tevi. Um, but at the same time, the fight has gotten so much—the fight is so much more different now, uh, in some respects, I would say. I've been on a kick lately— saying on the show that, you know, you may not be interested in political philosophy, but it's interested in you. And when you look at the ho-hum attitude so many take at the rising Marxism, not at the UN and not in what we used to call the third world, but here in America, I mean, it's really quite a frightening thing. I suppose we had versions of this in the 40s, and yet it seems almost to me today that what Moynihan warned Norman Podhoritz in 1974, the year before his piece, we need to be warmed, warned about again today, not as a matter of international response, but as a matter of national domestic defense. He said to Norman, we can't deal with this world if we do not recognize its ideology. And I worry about, you know, the yawn and the ho-hum and the dismissal of how uh, strong 
the Marxist elements have moved in this country. Um, from the radical movements that have gotten the nod of the scepter from the media to the Democratic Party, quite frankly, embracing it. It's it's something different from the 60s. I was on Bill Bennett's podcast the other day, and I said the difference, I think, is this. In the 1960s, you had radical movements. You had the Weather Underground. Uh, you would have the Black Panthers. But Hubert Humphrey and George McGovern wanted nothing to do with that. And that's different today. That's different today with their versions of what they are today, be it Antifa and BLM and the Democratic Party. They they use it and they embrace it. Yeah, I'm not sure about people felt in, Yes, I'm happy to. Yeah, I'm sure yeah, in the yeah, 60s people felt that, that they were also uh, to moderate and, and, and sane. So I, I think our, our enemies then were challenging and they are challenging today. And we just have to embrace the cost. Okay, let's uh, pick up on that on the other side. Sure. All right, great. We will be right back with more from Tevi Troy. Meanwhile, let me put in something I can speak positively about, which is balance of nature. I take it every single day. It's not like ordinary vitamins that are made with synthetics. Natural food in a vegetarian capsule with tens of thousands of vital nutrients. Give them a call today at 800-268-7, excuse me, 800-2468-751. Or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code BALANCE to get 35% off your first order and free shipping of this great product I've been taking for a year. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. If you're thinking about selling your home, if you are in the midst of selling your home and it's not going well, call my buddy James Wexler. He is my buddy of JMG Real Estate. He'll make sure it does go well. He guarantees to sell your home at market value, or he'll even pay the difference. For maximum convenience, he can also make you an upfront guaranteed offer within 24 hours. The Phoenix Business Journal ranks James the number one selling individual agent in Arizona and for not just one reason, a lot of reasons. Give James Wexler a call at 480-386-0711 or visit him online at jameswexler.com. That's jameswexler, W-E-X-L-E-R, Dot com. You won't leave any money on the table when you use James Wexler. We are talking to Tevi Troy about an interesting history of the conservative movement, um, basically involving the magazine Commentary, Commentary Magazine, which for many years was edited by Norman Podhoritz and now is edited by his son, John. Tevi, um, did we leave off on a point that you wanted to pick up on, or were we ready to enter a new area? I just don't remember. I'm sorry. Well, I was just saying that, that we should embrace the fight with joy and with right. eagerness and with optimism. And uh, that's right. the only way you're going to win. And that's how they did it. Look, the, 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 the cause was daunting in the 70s as well. Uh, but, right. But I would argue we won the fight. Right. And that takes us from the center... I don't know, the center liberal Democrat, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, to to the center right Democrat of Jean Kirkpatrick, who also has to credit her career, or at least the career we now know her for, to Commentary Magazine. She was actually pretty well known 
in the academic community until 1979, 1980. But when they pretended that they never knew her. <laughs> right, right, right. She was actually, wasn't she kind of a, wasn't her field kind of your field? Wasn't it presidential politics? I thought it well, was. She, she was uh, political science. Yeah, political but, science. Uh, and the but president. a brilliant political scientist and married to another political, brilliant political scientist. Uh, but she uh, wrote for commentary. And, and the point that our friend Continetti makes in this piece in the 75th anniversary of commentary issue is that there are two U.S. ambassadors to the United Nations who owe their positions to articles they wrote for commentary, which I think is great on both Matt Moynihan and Kirkpatrick. And Kirkpatrick's article was called Dictatorship and Double Standards. And she makes the point that was not obvious at the time, but is now, that a totalitarian regime will never reform itself and must be opposed wholeheartedly, whereas an authoritarian regime does have the opportunity to reform itself and therefore should be encouraged in that regard. And that helped define the Ronald Reagan policy. And, and it, was, it could be distilled further into reward your friends and punish your enemies. And the U.S. did have some friendly nations that were authoritarian and not exactly the regimes that we would embrace here, but they were friendly enough with us that we could talk about maybe reforming them and improving them, including some nations in South America, uh, whereas the totalitarian nations of the Soviet bloc needed to be, uh, needed to be uh, pushed back against and resisted wholeheartedly because there was no chance that they would reform. And in fact, they never did reform. They collapsed. And it was because of the Reagan policy that they collapsed, and Reagan helped, uh, was helped in developing that policy by Gene Kirkpatrick. And the way that got to Ronald Reagan is interesting, too, because this is another book you wrote about we don't have to promote right now unless you want to. But that article got to Ronald Reagan via Dick Allen, right? You want to talk about the role of intellectuals and what they do for Republican presidents for a moment or how that translated? How sure, that sure. It's a, right. It's a, a book I wrote called um, Intellectuals in the American Presidency, and it's a history of how presidents have worked both with intellectuals, both Democrats and, and Republicans. But what we found, and what I found in the book, is that Republicans kind of had a special relationship via the think tanks. The, uh, the university intellectuals tended to be more uh, on board with the, the Democratic Party, and I would say a little less likely to go into government, whereas the think tank intellectuals, they lived in Washington, they were ready to go, and they were eager to roll up their sleeves and work on policy, and Reagan brought literally hundreds of them into his administration. Um, and that Dictatorship and Double Standards article uh, is one of those pieces written by an intellectual that who was then brought into the administration. And I just have to say one quick thing about our friend Hugh Hewitt. I wrote an article in commentary about the politics of Medicare about 10 years ago, and Hugh Hewitt called it the domestic policy equivalent of dictatorship and double standards, right. which right. still to this day is the greatest compliment I've received in my life and perhaps could go on my tombstone someday. After every accolade I have given <laughs> Well, it's pretty good from you. Uh, but yeah, anyway, no, it's, really just because it's just because I hold commentary and Gene Kirkpatrick and that article and Ronald Reagan in such reverence uh, to be compared to that. I mean, that that's just, it, it's rare to have an article that has so much purchase, that has so much uh, recognition. Well, let, you, let me, you, let me you go mention further. it and let, instantly let, know let, what you're talking about. Yes, everyone does. But let me push further on interesting Democrats that were propelled into the Reagan presidency from commentary. You mentioned Elliot Abrams. He would be one. He was assistant secretary of state for Ronald Reagan, known to the commentary, writing for the commentary crowd. Uh, Bill Bennett, secretary of education, right? These were all Democrats who couldn't take it anymore, and Ronald Reagan took them instead, right? 
Uh, absolutely. And again, Elliot Abrams was one of those people who was disappointed by the Carter foreign policy, thought there was some promise there, and found out that he was wrong. And unlike some people who just say, well, it's my party no matter what, he said, well, I'm going to go to the place where the best policy is. And, uh, and, and that's what he did. And that, I mean, the names uh, we could keep reciting of people who wrote for commentary that ended up in the Reagan administration go on and on and on. Richard Pearl, of course, others. But what's interesting, too, is that was happening to the, to, to, to the Republican Party, these Democrats, these disaffected Democrats moving into the Republican Party and Reaganism because of the full-throated defense of America at the same time. Democrats were moving further and further left. So in a weird way, what you said about Gene Kirkpatrick's Dictatorships and Double Standards article in 1979 about why we should maybe support authoritarians that were on our side and subject to reform, it was interesting that the Democrats were actively supporting their opponents and the Marxist regimes that opposed them. And we may have to just leave it right there as I hear the music. It's a part of history we can come back to, maybe after the election, if that's okay. Hey, man, we'd love it. And people should go read the 75th anniversary issue of Commentary. And they should read your most recent book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Tevi, lots of love. Stay strong. We'll be in touch. Thank you so much, Seth, and thanks to all your listeners. You bet. Thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us. It means a ton. I apologize for some of the technical difficulties we had today, but thanks for sticking with us. I suppose if um, if I wanted to close the show on an important note, it would be this. I um, I wrote some strong and said some strong stuff in my opening monologue, and it's one of the most important messages. I could convey. If you missed it, please check it out. You can get all our audio at 960thepatriot.com. But I think it's a unique insight into the modern left, which I say only um, in contradistinction to the Democratic Party in a way that I probably should not do any longer, because the Democratic Party, as I put it in my monologue, has fully embraced and entrenched the modern left. And it's not the modern left that Tevi and I, Tevi Choi and I, were just discussing of the 1970s. It's the left of the 1960s where you literally have, and I mean literally, I don't mean anything but literally, you literally have movements in America today that have been embraced by Democratic leaders that tout Vladimir Lenin, Mao Zedong, and Che Guevara. The task is to know that, and the task equally true is to teach what Lenin, Mao, and Che stood for and said, and reaped. It's deadly serious. I hope we're up to it. Until tomorrow, folks, God bless you. Stay strong. Class dismissed.